Hey, Will, like I normally do, I just want to take a moment to tell our listeners to make sure they hit us up on social, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you might see us. Make sure you're sending us something. Also, you can email us directly at AppalachiaMeetsWorld at gmail.com. If you get a moment, shoot us a line, give us some feedback. Yeah, and wherever you listen to the podcast, make sure you subscribe to Appalachia Meets World. It just helps our podcast, but it also helps you know when we're releasing a new episode. The one thing that always worries me is that our young people growing up might feel some sense of embarrassment or shame because of the way Appalachia is portrayed in the media. Well, you know what? we got a lot to be proud of. Appalachia Meets World, a podcast about place and perspective, but always Appalachian. And don't forget, Will, tonight's episode is powered by SOAR. Shaping our Appalachian region. If you're an entrepreneur out there, especially in eastern Kentucky, check them out. Appalachia Meets World, we're back another week. It's Will. And Neil. What up, bro? What's going on? I feel like we haven't talked in forever. I know, I know. It was like last Friday. (laughs) Yeah. You know, this time of year with kids, it's spring break season. Yeah, it's that time of year. Kids are out getting a little break. The uh, weather's kind of starting sort of to change in my neck of the woods anyway. I had some good weather on spring break. I actually drove through wild and wonderful West Virginia, drove through many parts of Appalachia to get to my ending spot. Yeah, beautiful drive for you, I, I would imagine. Were, were you starting to see any greenery? Not really, not as much as I expected. Uh, it was a nice drive. It's always a good drive. We'll start to see some greenery on, on TV this week, Will. The Masters. It started yesterday, right? Thursday through Sunday? Yeah, it started yesterday. You know, you guys can check out the leaderboard wherever you're listening to, to us today and uh, let, let, tell us how it's going. But uh, let's be honest that people are only watching one person. It's unbelievable. Is it not? Everybody and their brother wants him to win. But even when he's not the tiger that he once was, people still want to watch because you're right. They want him to win. Yeah, they want him to win. Like at this point, I would just make sure somehow he made the cut because it automatically increases your primetime viewership for the weekend. Oh, yeah, I know for sure, right? Plus, we just had the NCAA championship this week. Yeah, congratulations to UConn. Yeah, what do you think about that? Did you like having the newcomers or the one blue blood in the final four? Do you consider them a blue blood? They've won four national championships. How many schools have won four? I understand. I mean, it's it's a good question. Who won? Who's Actually, won they've four? won five national championships. Three different coaches. Who has won more? I mean, it's limited per amount of programs that have won more, so that is a good point. I mean, I think I, it's I only three: Duke, North Carolina, and Kentucky, and UCLA. Oh yeah, UCLA. I guess you would have to put them in that conversation now. I think they consider him a blue bud, what Calhoun did while he was there. But my my, my thinking, I, I love the tournament. I love the newcomers. 
that upset people. But when it comes to the Final Four, I want to see the Blue Bloods. Yeah, I know. Me too. I want to. I want to. I want to see. Well, number one, Kentucky in it every year. Every year. Uh, yeah, which is really you know, been kind of off for a couple of years here. It's been kind of disappointing. But anyway, I, I agree with you. I think it helps the sport. Uh, everybody likes to see a Cinderella story until the final weekend, and then they don't want Cinderella anymore. <laughs> did you watch the CMT Awards this week? No, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't either. It's kind of odd. It's all about the videos. I didn't think they made videos anymore. Everything is getting pretty political. I'm I'm getting ready to just stop watching everything. Anyway, I did not watch. So, are you going to tell me what who the best who the artist of the year was? No, I don't even think they had artist of the year. Jelly Roll won a lot. Have you ever heard of Jelly Roll? It's what we used to call a kid in the fourth grade. <laughs> I think I think he was the big winner <laughs> in the night. Old Damn. Jelly Roll. Old Jelly Roll. I knew he. I knew he was destined for greatness. <laughs> I do have a little app news for you. Okay, good. I'm looking forward to app app news. I wanted to mention the ARC's annual conference will convene September 11th and 12th this year. It was just announced in Ashland, Kentucky, with Governor Bashir as the federal co-chair this year's theme is Appalachia Rises: Resilience, Strength, and Transformation. So check that out. And register for that if you're able to go to attend September 11th and 12th in Ashland, Kentucky this year. Also, the ARC's Appalachian Envision Roadshow. I know we've talked about that that in the past. They've had stops one through three. They talked about workforce development, tourism, and business development. They're getting ready to have stop number four on April 14th. It's all about building Appalachia's infrastructure. So they're going to have infrastructure experts and community leaders from Appalachia, Ohio, Kentucky, and Virginia. It's all virtual. You can go register. We'll put it in the show notes. It's the link. You also check out the ARC's website. They will share strategies on bolstering broadband, transportation, and other critical infrastructure throughout the Appalachia region. So Check that out. It's the Appalachian Vision Roadshow. It's a five-part series, but this is stop number four. How long do you think they'll be talking about broadband in Appalachia, Will? At, at mean, this point, they can't talk about it enough until they get it done. That's what I'm saying. Like, How long do you really think it's going to take to get it done? Because it's been like mainline topic for I feel what I feel like is years. And I realize it costs lots of money. We need to have experts on this program to just talk about how you get it done. Yeah, I know. You know, I am interested in the the specialist that we have on tonight's episode. Absolutely. I have a little bit more app news and we can talk about it. All right. All right. Keep going. Keep going. Sorry, I didn't mean to derail and get off on broadband again, but I feel like it just comes up all the time in our call. Uh, it does, and for good reason. We need it just like everyone else, equal and the same. One other thing I wanted to talk about, you know, we talked about changing of the season, but April, it's not only you know, opening of baseball season, but it's also the turn of spring, which means it's ramp season. Are you a fan of ramps? Uh, like ride your bicycle over <laughs> ramps, man, wild leeks, onions, you know, Appalachian ramps. 
Everybody in Appalachian knows about ramps. Ramps. I usually jump them. Oh, my gosh, Neil. We got to get somebody on here to educate you, son. Um, (laughs) Hey, you're Appalachian, but you don't even know what a ramp is. I can't believe it. We're going to pull your Appalachian card. April is the season for ramps. There's all kinds of festivals and dinners throughout central Appalachia, throughout the Appalachia region to celebrate the ramp. I just want to mention a few of them. Reliance, Tennessee, it's called the Ramp Tramp Festival, where it's, oh, it's, celebrating its 65th year. It's in mid-April in Reliance, Tennessee. It's a two-day event that features live music along with the Ramp Mills. Just to mention a couple of others, the Stink Fest, because obviously Ramp are onions. It's in mm-hmm. Huntington, West Virginia this year, April 22nd, as one of the Wild Ramp Signature Annual Events. So it's called the Stink Fest. It's after the Alium Tricocum, which is another name for the ramp or the wild leek. It's a day-long festival. It features ramp dishes from the Wild Ramp Harvest kitchen it's like the wild ramp which is actually kind of a farmer's market there in huntington west virginia but it's fresh (laughs) the upshur county library ramp dinner in buchanan west virginia 28th annual dinner will be held at the event center at brushy fork brushy fork roads another interesting one it's on tribal lands of cherokee north carolina on march 25th from 10 to 3 Ramps and Rainbow Festival. They celebrate the ramps as well as rainbow trout just to celebrate the beginning of spring. There's also the Ramp Up Peninsula (laughs) in the village of Peninsula, Ohio, where they celebrate what they refer to as the little stinkers, which often ramps are referred to. So ramps are a big deal in Appalachia. All all these years, I wondered what the Grinch does in the (laughs) offseason. He's going to every one of these. <laughs> so, yeah, you might be right. Guaranteed. There, there's a good website in regards to the West Virginia ramp dinners and festivals throughout West Virginia. We'll list a couple other more, but check out your local area. There's all kinds of ramp dinners and festivals happening throughout April and the 1st of May. Uh, one other little piece of Appalachian news I wanted to mention. In West Virginia, they just passed legislation for a new teacher certificate program for Teach for America Appalachia. It's had a successful entry into Kentucky, and they're kind of modeling the program off of Kentucky. But Teach for America is an excellent program that's been around for a long time, provides certified educators and place them throughout the country in places that need teachers in West Virginia, overseen by the State Department of Education. It was approved by the State Board of Education and will provide a variety of training, virtual and in-person practicum experiences and mentoring in order to fill areas of critical need. I just think it's an important component to what they're trying to do there in West Virginia to fill the need, the teacher need throughout the state. It took them a while to get this passed. I know some people were against Teach for America, but I just think it's a excellent tool to have throughout that state. It's a great thing, Will, so uh, I'm all for it. Yeah, and it kind of leads into what uh, we're talking about tonight. While we're going to be talking about health care 
to Dr. Randy Wyckoff, who is the founding dean of the College of Public Health at East Tennessee State University. Teach for America produces teachers. They produce public health professionals for rural areas. That's that's their mission. But I've been looking forward to this conversation, Will. I get to talk healthcare every, every day nowadays, so uh, this, this is going to be an interesting interview. Yeah, I just wanted to mention in regards to Dr. Wyckoff, we split it up into two episodes. So you'll hear the first part this week, the second part next week. Definitely an important topic, healthcare, obviously, throughout the region. But Dr. Wyckoff touched on a number of opportunities, number of challenges. And so we wanted to have it split up into two episodes in regards to the link. The first we'll talk about his book. The second we'll talk about just in, uh, healthcare topics throughout the region. Let's get into it. special guest, Dr. Randy Wyckoff. He is the founding dean of the College of Public Health at East Tennessee State University, which has been a college since 2006. So for the last 17 years, Dr. Wyckoff has been there in this position. He also leads the Center for Rural Health Research, which we want to discuss a little bit, which started in 2019. Prior, he has served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Health in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. He served 11 years at the Food and Drug Administration, where he was the Associate Commissioner for AIDS and Special Health Issues and for Operations, and later the Deputy to the Acting Commissioner. He also began his career as the District Medical Director in the South Carolina Department of Health and Environmental Control, where he led six rural counties in that region. He has a long list of accolades. Like we said, we're definitely honored for him to be on the program. And we want to get further into a lot more things, but also a new book that just came out last year. It's called Appalachian Health, Culture, Challenges, and Capacity. So Dr. Wyckoff, thank you so much for taking the time. No, thanks for having me. Look forward to talking to you. Neil and I, I like most Appalachians, our family's big on history, big on tradition. One of the traditions we have, we have appetizers at the holidays. We usually have this big spread of appetizers, bigger than the actual meal. So we wanted to ask you, Dr. Wachoff, do you have a, a favorite appetizer or just holiday dish? Oh, wow. Well, given that the final four is going on right now, my, my wife made some really nice guacamole yesterday out of some avocados that we had that were getting a little past ripe. So I'll, I'll count that as my my favorite appetizer. Nice, nice. We've had a lot of dip answers. You can't go wrong with the dip. Neil would say that the best thing to dip in any dip is the Tostitos, but not just any Tostitos, the multi-grain Tostitos. Have you had the multi-grain? I can't say that I have. Uh, we, we tend to lean towards the lime flavored ones, you know, the little, uh, little flavor on them. A little hint of lime. Yeah. yeah. Nice. <laughs> nice. Well, they are not a sponsor, but we like to promote the multi-grain Tostitos. Okay. Well, maybe they will become a sponsor. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know I, I mentioned that you founded the first, it's actually the first school of public health in central Appalachia. 
But I think a lot of our listeners, uh, a lot of people in general, you know, they understand medical school. You go to medical school to become a doctor. You go to dental school to become a dentist, a nursing school to become a nurse, et cetera. Can you explain for our listeners the difference between public health and medical school and, and really the significance of public health for the region, specifically the Appalachian region? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of different definitions of public health. I, I like to think of it as all of the things that a community has to do to help people be healthy. If you think about it, everything that goes into being healthy that doesn't have to take place in a hospital, a doctor's office, or a clinic. So exercise programs, nutrition, uh, pr- disease prevention, uh, smoking cessation, all of the things that a society together can do to improve health. You know, it's got a long history. It really began probably about 100 to 150 years ago when they discovered the germ theory, this idea that there are diseases that one person can spread to another. You know, if you think about it, no one doctor can control an epidemic, but a community can. So those are the kind of things that we do. I I like to say that public health is evidence-based altruism. Altruism means we care for people. Evidence-based means we use science. So we use science to care for people. That, that, that's a perfect definition. And, you know, I also mentioned it was at East Tennessee State University, which I like to consider kind of the heart of Appalachia, the central Appalachia region, which is what a lot of people think of when they think of the term Appalachia. But just what is, what is the significance of the first school of public health being at ETSU? Why did it get started? What's the history behind it? What's the history between sure. Behind ETSU, I know you have a mission of supporting rural underserved areas. Yeah, it's sort of interesting that historically most schools of public health are in state flagship institutions or large private universities. But if you think about it, the places in our country that have the worst health statistics, you've got Central Appalachia, you've got the so-called Black Belt in the Southeast, you have the U.S.-Mexico border and you have tribal lands, you know, and so it's really important for Appalachia to have a school of public health located in it. Um, and so we became the school. The, the interesting history, East Tennessee State University was started in 1911 with a very specific purpose, and that was to put teachers into Appalachia. They recognized 110 years ago that we weren't going to get any better if we didn't have teachers who were here. You know the history and how isolated many of our communities were. And then from that beginning, they then expanded, the university expanded to realize you needed jobs, you need health. And so by the 1930s, we actually had a minor in health at ETSU. And by the 1950s, we had an undergraduate degree in health education. So we've been doing public health for a long time, but it really wasn't until the early 2000s that they started to focus on having a school of public health. And at the time, we had something called the College of Public and Allied Health. And so in 2007, we split that into two uh, colleges. And then in 2009, we became fully accredited as a school of public health. Yeah, that's great for not only ETSU, but for the region as a whole. And you mentioned, you know, the public health being data-driven or research-driven. I was going to get into this a little bit later, but you can you talk about the significance of the Center for Rural Health Research? I know it's one of seven federally recognized 
rural health centers throughout the country. How significant is that for the region? Well, it's it's a big deal. The center itself began when Governor Bill Lee became governor of Tennessee. His very first act was to call on all his cabinet departments to come up with plans to improve the health and well-being of people in rural counties. Uh, you know, Tennessee, like so many states, has some very wealthy counties and has some very poor counties. And the poor counties tend to be rural and Appalachia. So the governor created, called for the creation of the center. And then our local health system, Ballot Health, put in money into the system. So we've, we have this unusual model where we actually started with money. We didn't have to write grants to get it. Uh, and that allowed us to hire some really world-class people like uh, Mike Mead from NORC. I mean, some people that are really nationally well-recognized. In the first three years, they've brought in over $10 million above what they got from the state and from Ballot Health. Wow. Obviously, money is not the, the measure of success, right? The measure of success is the kind of research that we're doing. And they're doing some really cutting edge work, both locally, across the region, across the state, and even nationally. And then when the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, awarded them one of the seven national rural health research centers, that really put us on the map as well. That's excellent. And, and you can, any anyone can find out a little bit more about that on your website, correct? Absolutely. Yeah, it's etsu.edu slash cph. I, I don't think I mentioned in the intro, but you are often recognized as, if not the, one of the faces of rural health care, not only in Appalachia, but throughout the country. You have an extraordinary, I've heard it before, you have an extraordinary background, not only in your education, but just in your upbringing in regards to rural healthcare. Can you briefly just describe your background and what factors really affect rural health or specifically rural health in Appalachia? Well, my personal family history is, you know, it's like every family history. You can find great things to brag about and things to be ashamed of. And <laughs> But both my mother and father, neither one was born in Appalachia, but both were raised in Appalachia. I come from a long line of healthcare providers, doctors, nurses. Uh, my great-grandfather was the city health officer in Charlottesville, Virginia, 110 years ago. And so my, my father was a researcher, parasitologist. We lived overseas for much of my youth. And you know, there's a lot of similarities between global health and rural health, right? How, what can you do to improve health in areas that don't have all the bells and whistles? what we call resource limited settings. That's a little judgmental, right? I mean, it's, we in Appalachia, we lack certain things, right? But we also have a lot of things. And that's why the book was Culture, Challenges, and Capacity. We have capacity here. So my personal background was sort of growing up thinking about health and healthcare in underserved areas. It just happened that I got lucky enough to get this job and have stayed here the rest of you know, the last 17 years and whatever else I've got left in my career is going to be here because there's really no better place to do what we do than, than here in Appalachia. Well, we are definitely thankful and honored that you have stayed and that you are here. And I'm glad that you mentioned the word similarities. Uh, on our show, while we call it Appalachia Meets World, 
while we try to dispel some of the misconceptions in Appalachia, we also go outside of the region and speak to people outside of the region, one, to see how they perceive our region, but also to better understand their region as well. And one thing that we've learned, there are many more similarities between our region and other rural areas than there are differences. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Appalachian Health. And I think this month, this issue, we're going to actually have an editorial basically saying that, you know, we have to learn from other communities. They have to learn from us. You know, whether you define it as rural or mountainous or you know, chronic poverty, whatever, whatever characteristic you want to define us as having, there are lots of other communities that have the same thing. And our job is to figure out what we can learn from them and what they can learn from us. You know, every community is a little bit different. So our extraction was coal. There's other communities that had gold and other communities that had tin and some that had timber, as we did as well. But there's some, there are a lot of similarities between communities that have had stuff taken away from them, uh, the you know, so-called extraction industries. You know, there's a, a certain sense of resilience in the people that stayed. You know, some people might call it stubbornness, <laughs> but, you know, it's, there's, there's something to admire. And the one thing that always worries me is that our young people growing up might feel some sense of embarrassment or shame because of the way Appalachia is portrayed in the media. Well, you know what? We got a lot to be proud of. And I think increasingly people in the large urban areas are realizing, you know what, there's, there's, a, there's a quality of life in the mountains that doesn't exist in other places. And I think we need to embrace that and we need to celebrate it and we need to convince our young folks that this is a place to stay and make a difference. Yeah, definitely. That's the whole point, really, of this podcast. And, and Neil and I like to say all the time, there's a little bit of magic in the mountains. Mm -hmm. Even if you move away, they always tend to draw you back. We wanted to dive into the book a little sure. bit. Okay. I'll be honest, it's on my next read list. I haven't have not read it yet, but I'm I'm dying to to really dive into it. But but it's broken down, and you mentioned uh, it's broken down into culture, into challenges, and and into capacities. The culture, you know, speaks of the region and the people, the challenges, the healthcare disparities, and the challenges, and then the focus on how can we solve some of those challenges or the capacity that we have. Can you just give a little bit of overview of the book and, and why now? Why, why was it published now? Why at this time? Yeah. Well, the background of the book, Doug Scutchfield is the co-editor. He passed away last year, unfortunately. He was a, a real powerhouse in public health. He started two schools of public health, very widely regarded, well-respected, despite the fact that he was from Kentucky. Um, <laughs> and Scutch called me up one day and asked if I'd want to co-edit a book with him. And I mean, that's that's an honor in and of itself. And the idea is that any region, whether it's Appalachia or anywhere else, has some unique characteristics. It has some differences. It has some things that we need to learn from others and things others need to learn from us. And we thought that putting together a book written by folks from across the region, um, virtually every chapter is written by folks who are living here in Appalachia. You know, it's it's not necessarily a book you want to read from front to back, though you're welcome to do that. In some ways, it's a reference source. For people from outside the region, I would suggest they start with Ron Roach's chapter. It's one of the best overviews 
of Appalachia that I've ever read. Ron is the director of the Center for Appalachian Studies here at East Tennessee State. And, you know, I think that sort of gives you the spirit of the book. We're not just about health. It's You've got to understand health in Appalachia and health anywhere as a complicated intermix of education, job opportunities, intergenerational changes, culture, and so on. And that's what we tried to capture in the book. Like data suggests, Appalachia, more specifically Central Appalachia, has some of the most significant healthcare challenges than anywhere else in the U.S. You know, we have the highest rates of cancer, of diabetes, mental health, drug overdoses, et cetera, et cetera. The list goes on. Can you dive into some of those challenges that are into the book? Um, Maybe just talk about a few and maybe why we have those challenges. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can get overwhelmed with statistics. So in, in public health, I like to look at the basic measures, things like life expectancy. You know, you can understand if someone doesn't live as long as someone else, something isn't going right. All right. So if you compare central Appalachia, so those are the, the counties in the middle, the 234 counties, 238 counties, and you compare them to the rest of the United States. So 238 counties versus 2,904 counties, our life expectancy is two to two and a half years less, not months, but years. That's a huge difference. And you start saying, well, what are the, what are the factors that cause that? You know, most people automatically go to lack of access to health care. You know, and to some extent, that's true. I mean, you need health care to stay alive, but it typically isn't the thing that distinguishes one community from another. Things like poverty, right? Our rate of poverty is about a third higher than the rest of the country. And what worries me most is intergenerational poverty. We know if someone is born to poor parents, they're 10 times more likely to stay in the bottom fifth than they are to get to the top fifth. And what we've seen over time since the war on poverty began, the gap between the bottom fifth and the top fifth has gone up by 50%. We're actually seeing a widening gap. And that means if you believe, as I do, that poverty is related to health, areas like our region are going to see worse health statistics over time. So the things I look at are educational achievement, poverty, access to health care, and then poor health behaviors, smoking rate about a third higher, obesity, you mentioned opioid use and death rate. I think the biggest mistake anyone makes is thinking that there's going to be one simple solution uh, to our problem. The real challenge is we've got to figure out a way of getting education, jobs, behavior change, and health care together. The mantra you'll always hear, and I'm sure you've heard this before when you talk to business, well, they, they, they have to go somewhere where there's a healthy, educated, drug-free workforce. Healthy, educated, drug-free workforce. We've got to move in that direction. Now, it doesn't mean we need to be like everybody else. We don't need to be an urban area. You know, we don't need, we don't need to fundamentally change who we are, but we do have to give our children a chance to get an education to get a good, well-paying job and to choose to stay in the region and make a difference. I love the answer. It's it's spot on. And, and uh, you, you know, you mentioned earlier 
our culture that we have in Appalachia. We we are a strong-minded, very independent <clears throat> culture, you, you, you know, and we always have been from the beginning of our region. Do you think our culture, that independent mindset, you know, we're a very hardworking region and you think that would play into a healthier mindset, but you think our culture has shaped our healthcare in the region or has it, or do you think it plays a role in our challenges or could it play a role in some of the solutions? I think it's part of the solution for sure. I think, you know, it's one of the capacities that we have is, as you say, hardworking, committed to the region, committed to family. I I think the challenge is no matter how hardworking someone is, if they're making minimum wage, still making minimum wage. You know, you see folks around here, and I'm sure in your area, who are working two jobs. Neither one pays very well. Neither one has health insurance. They're, they're real challenges. So what we've got to do is get that work ethic on top of an economic opportunity that gives people a chance to make the kind of money that they need to make to invest in their health and their education and so on. But I think ultimately it is part of our capacity. It's got to be, you know, we, we got to take what we've got and, and turn it into to attributes. Yeah, I think that points to the fact that you even made earlier about how intertwined the, the economic environment uh, is related to the healthcare uh, industry as well and, and vice versa. But, well, and, and, you know, I mean, you see it most obviously when you lose a rural hospital, when it shuts down, that's the death knell for that community. Healthcare is a you know a major employer in those regions where it exists, but where it doesn't exist, it's hard to get new businesses in. It's hard to it's hard to keep young people to stay and so on. And, and as the book demonstrates, uh, this is a long term solution oriented environment. D- does your book point to any action items that people can take? I, I know it it refers to capacity, but just in, in someone reading the book, what, what can they take away from the book in regards to action or in regards to things that they can do? Well, I, I think, first of all, you know, I, I often say I've, I've never been anywhere where there are more people who want to improve health than here. You know, we, we, we have a real interest in this. And I think the key, the key takeaway, if I could give any message, is Hey, you guys who are working on economic development, you guys who are working on education, you guys who are working on behavior change, let's all get together. Let's realize that what we're trying to accomplish is interrelated. You know, the ultimate is you don't want to produce somebody with a college degree and there's no job for them, right? Then they leave and then you've actually lost that investment. You've lost that time. So I think the, the takeaway is we've got the capacity to do it. We have to bring our resources together. And I think we also have to recognize that we don't have to do it like everyone else does it. There's going to be a different solution to economic development in our most rural counties than there is in our you know, quasi-urban counties. I think we're going to see a resurgence in agriculture as part of a, a growth industry. But again, it's going to have to probably be a little bit different, maybe boutique agriculture, you know, growing something that doesn't exist somewhere else. I think we have to not be afraid to be different. And I think we have to not be afraid to work together. And I will say it, though nobody wants me to say it, we have to get rid of our political divisions and recognize that we're all in this together. And it doesn't, we don't do particularly well when we're 
swinging one end of the pendulum back to the other, back to the other. We've got a shared destiny. Uh, we've got a shared, shared mandate. And I hope I live long enough to see the improvements in the region. You know, uh, that discussion with Dr. Wyckoff, obviously you can hear his commitment, his passion for the Appalachia region, but his expertise in rural health is just undeniable. I did want to mention, I'm sure the listeners didn't hear all my questions, but there's good reason for it. I actually wasn't able to be on the interview, so uh, I did want to let everybody know that I, I did miss the interview, but I, I did get to listen to it. And Dr. Wyckoff is obviously uh, exceptional in his field, really a great opportunity for our listeners to learn all about him, what he's up to, what he's done, what he's doing, what he continues to do. Great education for all of us, me included. I know we talked about the book in the beginning, but we want to split it up in two parts because Dr. Wyckoff touched on a number of issues in uh, Appalachia as well as a number of opportunities. So we wanted to split it up in two parts. You'll hear the first of it this week and the rest of it next week. So definitely check it out. It's an excellent interview with Dr. Wyckoff. Yeah, I really enjoyed the conversation, and we're obviously not great at these teasers, but there's one for you to come back next week to hear part two. I wanted to ask you, Neil, after we talked to Dr. Wyckoff this week, do you have an app biz for us? Uh, Will, this week, I'm not necessarily want to highlight a particular business, but just an organization that is one of our sponsors that in the in the light of talking about public health with Dr. Wyckoff, SOAR, shaping our Appalachian region, is actually hosting an Appalachian Nursing Academy. Will, they've, uh, they've partnered with the Kentucky Department for Public Health's Office of Health Equity. And this is the second ever Appalachian Nursing Academy. It'll be held July the 9th through the 21st at the University of Pikeville. I'm over in Pikeville, Kentucky. It's a two-week academy. It offers housing, of course, there at the, at the university, three meals a day, interactive programming with workshops, presentations, shadowing, mentorships, tours, etc., it's also a $1,500 scholarship to further your education at the college or university of your choice. You do have to reside in one of Kentucky's 54 Appalachian counties. So it is kind of limited to Kentucky. And it, it is also for rising junior or seniors in high school. However, you do not have to have any prior nursing related experience. So anyone in those grades uh, or soon to be in those grades at high school can apply to this academy, uh, but the deadline is, is nearing. It is April 15th. So um, I'm glad we got the opportunity to highlight it this week. So anybody that's listening can recommend it to somebody that they may know and uh, get those applications in before April 15th. You can do that at soar-ky.org. It sounds like a great opportunity for anyone looking for uh, a career or starting a career in nursing. So I thought that would be a great uh, highlight for this episode, seeing that we talked all about public health. Uh, and this is just an opportunity to, to, to be a part of that and to learn from the ground up and be part of that academy that SOAR is hosting in July. So I couldn't think of a better organization to highlight this week. 
That's awesome, Neil. I'm glad you mentioned that. You know, there's a huge need for physicians, for nurses throughout the region, and that the fact that Source partnering with this organization to put on this academy to try to produce more nurses, more healthcare professionals in the region. That's an awesome highlight, Neil, and uh, appreciate that little bit of insight. Also, wanted to highlight a business. Spoke of the organization. The business is Lindera Farms in Delaplaine, Virginia. They use fresh and delicious local ingredients to create vinegar that is truly unique in its ability to elevate whatever you happen to use it in. So I wanted to mention them because they have, and I've tried, an excellent ramp vinegar. Now, Neil's not accustomed to ramps. But this business is, they make a number of vinegars from everything from black locust to blackberry to onion, cherry blossom, elderflower, ginger, hickory. But I want to really want to talk about the ramp vinegar as well as ramp hot sauce. They make some chili and ramp hot sauce that it's pretty amazing as well. So Lindera Farms, it's a small business. They do everything in-house. They begin the process by picking the flowers, the berries, the ramps, whatever it may be, and turn it into vinegar. It's all natural, all organic. They don't use any chemicals in the growing process, no fertilizers. It's all natural. The only thing to do is mow the grass a couple times a year. First thing you think of when you think of buying local, you may not think of vinegar. But if you want to support local food, sustainable and responsible agriculture, if you just want something that's great, tasting in your food in your dishes heck you can even drink it plain it's that good try lindera farms ramp vinegar or any of their other products it's lindera l-i-n-d-e-r-a farms f-a-r-m-s dot com so lindera farms.com they also has a recipe section where you can see how some of the best culinary minds in the country are using their vinegars. Check out their website. Check out their vinegars. You won't be disappointed. So I I felt like that's a perfect way to end the show tonight. We want to thank Dr. Wyckoff again for his time. He's obviously an extremely busy individual, and we appreciate him taking the time for us. Absolutely. Good talking to you too, Willie. Yep, every week we'll be back next week with the follow-up to Dr. Wyckoff, but I guess we can end it like we usually do. Till next time. Peace. I'm up in the mountains again. I'm getting lighter, the air's getting thin. Now I'm facing down with a grin. I've been in the city too long. Sidewalks and buildings and singing sad songs Now I'm back up where I belong In the mountains